If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness about me, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all of these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Good evening, church family and guests. It's my honor and privilege to walk through this passage with you tonight. We're going to be in Romans 12, 14 to 16, so please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. But before jumping into our passage tonight, I think it's going to be good for us to pause and do a brief review over the things that we've learned from this letter in Romans and to set the context, um, again, for which uh, Paul has write, written this letter to this church in Rome. It's very important that when we're considering biblical passages that we're very careful to keep them in their proper context because that allows us to rightly divide or handle the word of truth. So let's take a look at where we've been so far. So Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome to encourage believers there in the doctrines of faith. This church is one where Paul has not visited yet. In fact, if we look at the first chapter, so Romans 1, verses 10 and 11, we see where he's always in prayer for them, and he longs to see them to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Alan mentioned so beautifully last time that the first 11 chapters are deeply rich in the doctrine of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as well as the doctrine of election. Dr. Chain, several weeks before, pointed out that in the first 11 chapters, the mercies of God are evident. These mercies are the mercies that Paul references in Romans 12:1, And they're so clear that he went as far to list out 22 different specific examples 
of God's mercy towards us. Another note about this letter to the Roman church centers around the verbs that Paul uses in the first 11 chapters. These verbs are in the indicative mood. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in New Testament Greek because, quite honestly, I'm a football coach, and that's way above my head. But what does it mean that these verbs in the first 11 chapters are in the indicative mood? That means these truths are statements of fact. It's exactly how it is. When we look at chapter 12, we see a transition in the verbs from indicative mood to the infinitive, I'm sorry, to the imperative mood. And that means we are transitioning from statements of facts to commands. You may ask yourself, what all does that mean? What that means is that because these truths are clearly evident, because these statements of facts are true, this is the way we live. Because 1 through 11 is the truth, working out and living out our faith, we follow the commands in 12 to 16. It is an outflow of these truths that we see in the first 11 chapters. We've looked at the biblical context But there's also another context that we need to examine and be clear about as we read this passage, and that's the historical context of what's going on at this point in history. First century Rome is not a hotbed of the Christian faith. It is dominated by paganism. It is not a place that Christians are really welcome. One only needs to look at 1 Peter to see the types of persecutions that were already being acted out upon Christians at that time. And this was even before the empire-wide persecutions Christians would endure under Decius in 249 to 251 AD. The persecutions were primarily local, but they were very severe, or could be, oftentimes leading to execution of people who professed to be Christians. Also, let's take a look at Rome itself. Many scholars debate, and there's varying opinions on the magnitude of the city of Rome in in the first century. Several estimates suggest that the city was roughly about 10 square miles in size, with a population ranging anywhere from half a million people to three to four million people. What does that mean? Well, by contrast, Fort Smith is roughly, according to the United States Census Bureau, 64.6 square miles of area, with just over... 86,000 people. Can you imagine the type of crowding that went on in that city of Rome? It is into this environment and this atmosphere that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this letter to these believers to strengthen and encourage them. Lastly, Alan in his teaching on verses 9 through 13 mentioned the marks of a true believer. He showed us that in verse 9, the personal marks of the true believer are identified. And then in verses 10 through 13, he showed us the family marks of a true Christian, or how true believers were to interact with other true believers. Our passage tonight widens that circle even one more step. Widens that circle to explore how true Christians are to relate to everyone, not just believers, but also the unbelieving world. Now, with all of this in mind, let's take a look at the passage. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. Bless those that persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. As we look at this passage, I would like to focus on two points that jump out from the text. Point number one, the true believer's life will be marked by persecution. And we see that coming to us out of verse 14. The true believer's life will be marked by persecution. Point number two, the true believer's life will be countercultural. The true believer's life will be countercultural. And we see that coming through the whole passage, verses 14, 15, and 16. So let's take a look at this first point. The true believer's life will be marked by persecution. Look back at verse 14 again and see what Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Well, let's push pause right there for just a minute and look at what's missing from this statement. Notice that Paul doesn't say, if you're persecuted, bless those when it happens. No, rather, he goes straight for the assumption that if you're living the Christian life, you will be persecuted. He echoes this warning in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, guys, this thought is not popular among Western culture. This thought is not the type of Christianity that most people in our part of the world want to hear. But it does match up with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, during the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples that persecution will come in verse 23 when he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And then he goes on in verse 24 saying, a disciple is not above his master, nor a servant, sorry, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his master, and the servant to be, sorry, keep getting that wrong, a disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So you see this thought process that many in the Western world want to ascribe to that the Christian life is all about your best life now. Well, that's a false promise. That's not what the Bible teaches. Scripture tells us plainly, if we look at John 16, 33, in the world, you will have tribulation. So does that mean that every bad thing that happens to us in this life is a form of persecution? No, not at all. That's not what that means. In fact, most of the bad things that happen to us in this life is more likely to be attributed to calamity that comes as a result of living in a fallen world. Make no mistake, persecution is real, and persecution will come. 
However, calamity is real as well. And calamity comes as a result of the fall. So what is calamity? What is persecution? And how are they different? The idea of calamity, as used in the Bible, is this picture of destruction or disaster, wickedness, mischief, or naughtiness. We see this idea used in Mark chapter 13, verse 20, where it says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, and some translations read, days of calamity, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In Acts 27, when Paul was warning of the impending calamity about to befall the ship carrying him to Rome, he says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will end with injury and much loss, or disaster and calamity, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 6.4, Paul outlines some of the trials he's endured. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, and calamities. So we live in a fallen world, and this idea of bad things happening to good people, that's just a false question. I guess the question should be, why do any good things happen to us? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and we deserve the wrath of God. And that wrath is the calamity that falls upon us. Persecution, on the other hand, is a deliberate harassment or trouble. It's pursuit with the intent to do harm. As it applies to Christians, it oftentimes relates to, or as a result of, living according to the teachings and example of Christ. Remember the verse I pointed out in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, as we read a few minutes ago, Paul writes to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say that all who go to church will be persecuted. It doesn't say all who claim to be Christian will be persecuted. It says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What that persecution looks like will often differ depending on our surrounding circumstances. If we look at the New Testament, we see several examples from the first century. The very trial and crucifixion of Christ is a startling example for us. And this event was foretold 700 years before it happened. In Isaiah 53.3, we see where it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Then in Luke Chapter 23, verse 34, as he is being crucified, our Lord Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the example of Christ is too far of a reach for you, then we only have to look at Acts chapter 7, verse 59 and 60, where we see the story of Stephen's stoning. And it reads this, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. 
And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In our present day, we see news reports of churches being burned and vandalized. We see stories of Christian brothers and sisters imprisoned and oftentimes executed. But living where we live, we have relative peace and safety. And if we're not careful, we can forget that the world is not our friend. While we may never face martyrdom, our persecution will and likely will take on a more subtle form. Alistair Begg puts it this way, whatever form persecution may take, it is an inevitable part of the Christian experience. He goes on to give a couple examples of the type of persecution that we may see in our part of the world. It goes something like this. Well, who do you think you are? Are you too great? Are you too special? What do you mean you're not going out with us tonight? We've always done this type of stuff together. What's up with you? Or in a business dealing, it may look something like this. What do you mean you can't fudge this thing? We've been doing business together for years. It's not this Jesus thing kicking in again, is it? You've been my partner all this time. We've always done this. What's gone wrong now? Or maybe when you're talking to friends, it could look something like this. We always sit around talking and gossiping about these women. It's no fun with you anymore. There's something wrong with you. You used to really enjoy this sort of thing. See, persecution can take on all sorts of forms. It doesn't have to be violent or physical. In fact, oftentimes it's just a look, a smirk, or an idea, a conversation behind our back when we're not there because we are marked, we're different, we are believers in Christ, we are followers of Christ, and the world is not our friend. So whatever the case, whatever the form, persecution will come those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. So what's the difference between calamity and persecution? Calamity will come on all the earth simply because we live in a fallen world. Persecution will come as a result of living according to the teachings and example of Christ. Lest I leave you in a state of despair, let's take a look back at that John chapter 16, verse 33 verse again. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? Well, by defeating sin and death. We are able to lay hold of the promise of a coming day as we see in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So take heart, dear Christian, regardless of what happens to us in this life, 
Jesus has already conquered sin and death. As Paul tells us in the sixth chapter of Romans, for those of us who are in Christ, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Our second point tonight, the true believer's life will be countercultural. The true believer's life will be countercultural. Let's take a look back at our passage to dig out this truth. Paul says, "Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep." Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul is calling us to be marked or to be distinct. To be set apart from the world by the way in which we react to our circumstances and the way in which we live out our faith. It is natural to want revenge. It is natural to want justice when we're wronged, to be jealous of others when they're blessed, to secretly enjoy someone else's misfortune. It's natural for us to see ourselves as more important than we are, to want to avoid certain types of people and yet be drawn to others. But we are not called to be natural. In fact, we are called altogether to be unnatural. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 17 tells us, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 8, 5 through 8 tells us that the flesh or the natural man is the enemy of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds against the thing, on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As followers of Christ, we are no longer to live according to the deeds of the flesh. But rather we are called to live according to the Spirit. And as a result of that calling, when we are persecuted, we cannot curse. When we're persecuted, we are to bless. So what does it truly mean to curse and to bless? These two words are direct opposites. They, they're not the same thing. They're not even close. They're distinct and direct opposites. To curse means to wish doom or destruction upon someone. 
In fact, we have a great example of this in Luke chapter 9. So if you want to flip over there, flip over there and see what a couple of disciples of Jesus had to say about this. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We see a picture of a Samaritan village rejecting Christ. And this is what happened. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, remember their names, right? The sons of thunder. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Imagine that as an evangelist, uh, evangelistic model. I'm going to come to you, I'm going to witness to you, and if you don't receive me, I'm going to call down fire to consume you. Talk about revival, right? Well, this story harkens back to an Old Testament story where Elijah actually called down fire to consume some soldiers sent from King Ahaziah the king of Israel. You can read more about that in 2 Kings 1, 9 through 16. It's an interesting story. It's not enough for a follower of Christ to not just not curse his persecutor. No, we're told to bless them. In fact, it's such an emphatic command that it's repeated. This technique is a Hebrew literary technique calling attention to some great truth or emphatic statement. It's repeated. We often see this when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's their way of saying, hey, listen up. What I've got to say right here is important. And Paul's using this technique here and saying, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. So what are we emphatically being commanded to do? What is he telling us to do when he's saying, bless them? What does it mean to bless someone. In the South, we have this saying, it goes a lot like this, well, bless their little heart. Well, that's not what he's saying. That falls way short of the sentiment that Paul's trying to convey here. By blessing someone, we're actually asking God to pour out his favor upon them. What's the best thing that you could wish for someone? That's to ask God to save them. We are actually being commanded to bless our persecutors by asking God to pour out his favor upon those who are doing us harm, pursuing us with intent to do harm, to save their very souls. Listen to this quote from Alistair Begg again. Where is the kindness of God to be found? In the people of God. So that when the people of God respond to the persecution of those who are opposed to God, not in retaliation, but in prayers for their salvation, then men and women will be caused to say, I don't understand that. And that very question mark over the issue may become the occasion of their salvation. How we interact with the unbelieving world when we are pressed, when we are squeezed, when we are persecuted, 
could actually be the moment they see Christ in us the most. True believers are called to stand out from the world, to be distinct. Blessing or asking God to pour out his favor on those who persecute you because of your faith in Christ is one way the true believer can be distinct. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this in Luke 6, verses 27 to 33. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not hold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. To be set apart, to be distinct, to be different from the world, to be a true follower of Christ will cause you to be different. In verse 15, Paul tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What does that look like? Well, it means to be glad or to rejoice in the blessings, honor, and good fortune of others, no matter what our own situation is. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul writes, If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. To weep with those who weep means to be sensitive or compassionate to the hardships and sorrows of others. As in the example of Jesus, set by Jesus himself in John chapter 11, verses 32 to 36. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Christ sets the example for us, how we are to interact with others who are sorrowful, with others who are weeping, with others who are hurting. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In a world that tells us to be jealous of others for their good fortune and to relish in the misfortune of others, to be set apart, to be a true follower of Christ will cause you to be distinct, will cause you to be different, will cause you to live counterculturally. Verse 16 says, 
live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. To live in harmony, or as some translations say, be of the same mind with one another, means to be impartial. We see an example of this from Romans 2.11. God setting an example. Paul says, for God shows no partiality. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, sit here at a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James goes on in verse 9 to say, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. transgressors. Acts, 10, chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Brothers and sisters, Partiality is not to be found among us. So living in harmony with one another is to not show partiality, is to not favor one over another, but is to treat all accordingly like the word tells us to. To not be haughty is to be filled or not filled with self-seeking pride. Paul warns us against this self-seeking pride in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. If we are not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly, we're not to be puffed up with pride, we're not to see ourselves as more important than we should. We're to see ourselves with sober judgment and not to look down on others. Paul continues and says, never be wise in your own sight. Christians are not to have conceit or feelings of superiority toward fellow believers. Romans chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 tells us, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we view ourselves as wise, are we taking ourselves and putting ourselves on a pedestal, seeing ourselves as more than we should? Our wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Our wisdom comes from him and through him. So our second point tonight is, the true believer's life will be countercultural. The call to be marked or be distinct or to be set apart from the world by the way in which we react to our circumstances 
the way in which we live out our faith will cause you to be different and in turn will lead to your persecution for Christ. So as I wrap up, I have a couple questions for you to reflect upon. Have you experienced persecution for your faith in Christ? Have you had to take a stand on an issue where your faith marked you or made you distinct? If so, listen to this promise from Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Let us pray. Lord God, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus and the other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us. Lord, we pray that as we live out our lives, we would do so in a fashion that marks us as true believers, that sets us apart from the world. Holy Spirit, strengthen us and still us against the persecution that will come as a result of a desire to live a godly life. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus, thank you for the victory over sin and death that comes as a result of your finished work on the cross. Thank you for raising us to walk in the newness of life through your resurrection. May we seek to serve you as true followers all of our days. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.